This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm a Texas tiger. You're a liberal wiener. I'm a great crusader. You're a Herman Munster. This land will surely vote for me. You know, I know that we said we were we were swearing off saying that a movie we've watched is the worst thing we've ever watched on this podcast because uh, you know about four or five months ago when we watched coastal elites i thought well this is there is no getting underneath this yeah this is this is the bottom well i'm putting my words on a plate and eating them right now because i really shudder to think what could possibly be further beneath the movie we watched this week maybe we should just stop saying that such and such a thing is the worst thing we've ever watched we seem to be constantly probing new depths and you know we we brought this on ourselves because uh you know last week you know, we did an episode on Tony Benn, which was available on the free feed. And then on a Patreon feed, we did an episode on one of your muses, uh, the filmmaker John Waters. And we decided, let's get back to basics next week. You know, we've we've dwelt in the realm of the cerebral a little bit too long here. Let's give the fans, um, you know, some meat and potatoes. And while this, uh, while what we watched this week is definitely meat and potatoes... You know, this isn't a film that I would wish on my worst enemy. I will just say welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan <laughs> here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Yeah, we're we're kind of just flying right into it this week. I mean, speaking for myself, I just finished this movie uh, and it has completely shattered my worldview <laughs> and I'm and I'm itching to discuss it with Will, who I believe uh, just finished watching it an hour or so ago. I mean, I had high hopes for this because as we know, you know, you are a far left communist and I am a far right social and fiscal conservative. And I was hoping that this movie, which is called The Reunited States, would help us bridge some of our divides. Uh, and and it, it seems to have because we seem in total agreement on this. But by the way, I'm actually not a far right conservative. Uh, and, and the only reason I say that is because apparently people regularly come to Luke and, and say to him, why do you? of a podcast with a conservative person <laughs> i remember in 2016 uh when we were starting this podcast you said something about how you were a trump supporter and someone i went to university with very earnestly approached me and was like you know yeah you know you was that you were saying like uh that you know your co-host is a big trump supporter and i, and I don't know uh, it, it kind of it kind of shatters you know the ironic tone that i feel like is very much the core of this show uh and yet uh, i do think because a lot of people listen we, we now uh, it's now up on us to uh declare Well, this movie comes to us from uh, executive producers, I want to say, or at least presenters, Van Jones and the queen, Meghan McCain. And the poster features two (laughs) clasped hands shaking, one white, one black. I think you can imagine which actually dominates the film. Hey everybody, I'm Van Jones. I am Megan McCain. And we are so excited for you to watch this documentary, The Reunited States. This is such an important film for everyone to see, no matter which side of the aisle you're on. It is a powerful testimony to the fact that we can bridge these divisions. To have someone look at you as if we don't deserve to be respected, it does something to you. Every person can play a role in trying to pull this country back together. I wish there was something I could do to help her. Bring us back to a place that I think we all want to coexist and live in. If there has ever been a time for bridge building and for trust building, it is that time. I don't want other mothers to go through this. This is the moment that we decide to start healing instead of dividing. Watch this documentary. Be a part of this mission to move our country forward. This movie seeks to open a new chapter on the American story by presenting the inspirational uh, wit and wisdom of a group of characters who are seeking to heal a polarized nation. It opens with some of the footage that we've been seeing on the news over the last year. You know, protests. We see Black Lives Matter protesters, for instance. We, at one point, very briefly hear them saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You also see some of the riots in Charlottesville, which I think the movie implies in its opening montages of moral equivalence to the Black Lives Matter protests. But those aren't the stories that this movie wants to focus on. This movie wants to focus on a couple of people who are trying to just get Americans to talk to each other. Yeah, I want to say right off the bat that before I even knew what this movie is, like, you know, I first heard of it, I think a few months ago, and all I heard was, 
uh, Van Jones and Megan McCain teamed up to make a movie. And I thought, well, we're doing it. I don't care. I don't care what the movie is. We're going to sit through that because no one else is going to. And actually, actually, though, having said that, given how many leftist podcasts there are today, I'm surprised nobody has uh, sunk their teeth into this one yet. I think it came out on something like February the 9th. And if I had to venture a guess, uh, the reason is because it's not very interesting, even by the standards of this sort of film. It is a sort of mad lib of postpartisan cliches. You know, it's sort of like Obama's There Are No Red States and Blue States speech blown up into a movie that can barely sustain its nearly 90-minute running length. It's a film that very much states its thesis, I think, in about the first five minutes. I mean, the the first, you know, my girlfriend was watching with me. Um, She kind of came in after it had been going for like a minute, and she said, is this like a trailer? Is this an ad? Like, that's how the first kind of five minutes feel, but they are just, you know, the editorial statement of the film, the very bland editorial statement in its entirety. And then the rest of the movie uh, is kind of these uh, very dissonant narratives sort of very awkwardly woven together into something that's not really, uh, I don't think, narratively or politically coherent. By the end of this movie, I actually felt myself like going insane. The, the sheer <laughs> number of times that you hear people say, we need to start listening to each other again. We need to foster conversations. You hear people say that. It, it, it's like water torture, you know, just doing that same thing over and over again. Getting into the film, I think we should maybe list off some of the characters in it who I think are a, they are a motley lot. Some of them are perhaps more worthy of your respect or at least your empathy than others. And some of the others are, frankly, some of the worst people I've ever seen in a movie. So <laughs> in that category, I would begin with Mark Gerzog, who is the author of a book that this movie is based on called The Reunited States of America. And he tells us, I've been a bridge builder between Democrats and Republicans in the partisan divide for the last 30 years. And his big insight is, and I quote, the real key to solving the partisan divide is within each of us. That's part of being a citizen in the United States of America. He also says, you know, he identifies the problem of polarization as being a loyalty to party that transcends loyalty to the country. And I just want to bookmark that because I think the obvious questions raised by that statement are, I think, very important to understanding why a film like this and the uh, solutions that it poses, as well as its its kind of core diagnoses, don't actually make any sense. We don't see a lot of Mark Gerzog, but another salient point that he mentions in the very final minutes of the movie is... Being a bridge builder isn't about compromising your beliefs. It's about standing up for your beliefs, but respecting your adversary when they do exactly the same thing. And I was actually kind of surprised to hear him say that because the preceding 88 minutes or so of the movie have, have all been about basically how, how standing up for your beliefs is the problem, to put it crudely, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's not about respecting the other side. It, it is about compromising your beliefs. It's about talking and then finding a middle ground solution that makes everybody happy. That's what the movie's advocating, if it's advocating anything. Yeah, I mean, the film, it's, it's kind of all over the place with this. And, uh, you know, we should lay out some of the other characters because I think the plot lines really don't mesh together. I mean, the film, it just oscillates, it swings wildly from sort of one plot line to the next, um, and they don't go together very well at all. I mean, so you have... The mother of Heather Heyer is another major character. Her name is Susan Bro, and she lives in Virginia, and she has started an organization called the Heather Heyer Foundation. And Heather Heyer, for those who don't remember, was the activist in Charlottesville who was hit by the van that drove into the crowd and was killed. Right. So she was uh, she was at the protest, and uh, and she was you know murdered by a far right person uh, driving this van into the crowd. She's, you know, she's a pretty sympathetic figure. But the other characters in the film include somebody who started something called uh, the Millennial. God, sorry, I have to, I have to look at my notes here because all these things sound the same. There, every everything in this movie, every organization almost is called like, you know, the Bridge Builders Initiative for Change or like the Foundation for Synergies for All Who Want Them or something like that. Well, this guy you're alluding to is low key my favorite character because his <laughs> name is Stephen Olikara. And his group is called the Millennial Action Project. And I want to tell you, 
He is a millennial. In fact, he even plays in a band. That's how much of a millennial he is. And music has informed his politics because democracy at its best is like a boisterous jazz ensemble. Okay, I laughed so hard during... When when I say the film swings wildly, okay, between these different narratives, this is what I'm talking about. You've got got Heather Heyer's mother going to churches, talking about what happened to her daughter, and then it it swings over to this guy, and he's saying stuff like, jazz is inherently a call and response medium. You know, listening is everything. And uh, let me tell you, folks, there's not a whole lot of listening in Congress. And then there's just like, you know, Kenny G style jazz, like playing over top of it or whatever. So let me tell you about what the Millennial Action Project is. (laughs) It was, according to him, the first time that millennial Democrats and Republicans joined forces to work together on the issues facing our country's future. And you know, he he was looking at Congress and he said, you know, the average age of a congressperson is 20 years older than the average age of, of an American. And and who's out there? Who's out there looking for our interests? You know, the youths of today. I can think of one person who's particularly popular with the youths, uh, more popular than anyone's ever been, in fact. Well, the Millennial Action Project is looking for members who are, and I quote, young by age or young by heart. And I think young by heart is doing a lot of work there because, you know, I know some <laughs> 60-something oil lobbyists who have a very young soul, you know, who I think would love to get involved in a group like this. Yeah, they like being epic on the timeline and doing the soy face. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, and then the other thing he says is... uh, you know, young people, they're not interested in left and right. They're interested in future and past, which is like so obviously just a kind of like transliteration of, you know, not left, not right, but forward. And this is this guy is so funny because he occupies. I mean, maybe it's it might be a quarter of the film. It might be a third of the film. And he just says the same thing over and over and over again, which is, you know, we got we got to move on from this, uh, this, you know, toxic partisanship. You know, we got to get Democrats and Republicans, you know, sitting together in a room. Uh, And, you know, one of the one of the concrete initiatives, perhaps the only one they talk about is their organization created something called a student loan bill of rights. And as far as I can tell, given how they describe it in the film, is that this is just uh, so uh, students could know how the laws around their loans, that is the existing laws, um, were. This guy is incredible. He is like Teflon. You do not hear a single thing he believes. Yeah, and because I couldn't help it, I I looked into this organization a little bit. Now, the funniest page I found about it, apart from the group's own website, is uh, something on Influence Watch, which, as far as I can tell, is a right-wing page that's like Conservapedia, where it's like, they're here to tell you uh, the biases and stuff. You know, they're here to find left-wing bias in absolutely everything. But there is some useful information on, on this page. So here are a few of the uh, members who sit on its advisory board. So you've got Olympia Snow, who is a former Republican senator from Maine. A couple people you've never heard of, all of them sort of like lawmakers with backgrounds in, in one of the two major parties. People you will have heard of, Jennifer Granholm, the former Democratic governor of Michigan, a kind of centrist Democrat who's a um, big figure in the in the sort of Hillary Clinton Orbit, John Huntsman Jr., you know, every pundit's favorite Republican uh, who got nowhere from uh, 2012. And uh, yeah, just a few other people you uh, you probably haven't heard of. In terms of how it's funded, uh, it lists numerous partners on its website. They include Google, Uber, Lyft, WeWork, Twitter. Um, there are some things like the William Brennan Center for Justice, which is, you know, a, I mean, I've cited them. Uh, they're fine. They're kind of a civil rights organization. Uh, there's something called the Bipartisan and policy center they're involved with anyway the, the list goes on and there's uh, some other stuff i'm not really familiar with but i mean this this really gets it you know the first obvious problem with the outlook this guy uh, expresses and the thing that uh you you usually find at the root of anything that calls itself like a bridge building initiative or uh you know there's the uh, the famous problem solvers caucus in dc you know, which is just all of this is just repackaged political centrism, right? And like, who pays for it? Just in this case, you know, you have a few uh, sort of, uh, you know, left of center nonprofits, but then, you know, you just have the usual suspects, right? Uh, that also pour money into both major parties, Google, Lyft, WeWork, Twitter, whatever. This is the guy I hate the most because he's the most disingenuous one. There's no chance that he believes a single thing that he says in this movie. He's a little apple 
polisher who exists only to grift money off of like corporate donors and well-meaning small donors. I you know I try to be in 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 things that we hate especially I try to be as sympathetic as I can to people. Um I, I mean I know that sounds like it's me taking up the thesis of the movie perhaps ironically, but I, but I'm serious. If you really hate something, you know, you can actually kind of refine your hate and make it pure or, or rather refine your critical perspective on it by trying to radically empathize with it. In cases like this, I, I found that uh, really, really difficult because, yeah, this organization <laughs> is so obviously like fraudulent to the core. And, you know, you know, what I really hate about this guy is his whole shtick is talking about he keeps half the movie is just him saying stuff like, you know, in the beginning, people said we were too idealistic. Oh my like, God. could we could we really build bridges, you know, between one group of people who thinks tax credits is a solution to everything and another group who thinks a slightly different kind of tax credit is a solution to everything? The fact that this group holds conferences that people attend, that political figures attend, what a waste. You know, just a black hole in everyone's life. I don't know. Hate it. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking left, right. I wish somebody would come up with a third way. Well, fortunately, in Kansas... Uh, you got this. You're my second favorite character coming, <laughs> coming in guns blazing here. In Kansas, perennial third-party candidate Greg Orman is here to offer a different kind of politics. He ran for Senate. And now he's running for governor, and he thinks the two-party system is broken. He thinks it's all about just electing their politicians to serve their agenda. But he, and I know you're going to love this one, Luke, is the inventor of what's called the Senate fulcrum strategy, which is, let's say there were two independents in the U.S. Senate. That means neither party would have a majority. And those two independents would be the deciding votes to control the Senate. And you can use those votes to get Washington back to solving problems. Also known as being Joe Manchin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he works very hard. I mean, we occasionally by accident hear something that he believes, unlike the last guy we talked about, but he works very hard to position himself as a strictly non-ideological political candidate. The, the one moment when we hear something he believes is uh, somebody asks him, what does he think about gun control? And he thinks, well, you know, he's a gun owner. He believes he can honor the Second Amendment while also having sensible gun control legislation. And I hear that and I think, why didn't somebody think of that before? Right. So again, I couldn't help myself and I looked a little more into this guy. I mean, he's, you know, a perfectly uh, pleasant, plucky, you know, 40 something politician. He keeps talking about, you know, how, you know, he wants to make independence a sort of like he wants to really sort of reify that as a as a political identity. He he talks about, you know, how the need to create a third force, a a, a third way, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, this is obviously, you know, just one like everything else in the movie. It's just about moving beyond, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And I mean, it sounds Again, like all of this stuff is just is just rebranded centrism. Um, and by the way, there, there are actual substantive conversations to have around the film, which we'll have later. But I, I want to put all our cards on the table first. So, again, stuff like this, it is just rebranded centrism. Look into this guy, and what's his background? Well, he's a former McKinsey consultant, um, okay? You know, he went to Princeton. He has a degree in economics and finance. Uh, fine. Uh, you know, he was a member of the College Republicans. He worked for George H.W. Bush in 1988, and then he supported Ross Perot later, you know, before taking up, uh, you know, like, like Pete Buttigieg, before hearing, you know, the siren song of real public service and going to work for McKinsey and Company. In 2008, he donated to both Clinton and Obama. He donated to Harry Reid and, and uh, Al Franken later. Uh, he has also donated to Republicans like Todd Aitken and Scott Brown. Uh, you know, his donations are kind of all over the place. He was endorsed uh, during his Senate run by a group called Traditional Republicans for Common Sense. Uh, <laughs> boy, that just rolls off the tongue. It's like saying cellar door. Well, that, that bothers me because I'm very much against common sense. I think it has no place in a civilized democracy. <laughs> so they, they endorsed him. Uh, this is from the Wikipedia page on the campaign. During the campaign, Orman did not appear to receive significant support or help from any politicians or organizations, including Democrats. After the election, final fundraising reports showed that groups supporting Orman had received $1.5 million from Senate Majority PAC, run by former advisors to Harry Reid, uh, $1 million from independent New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and donations from GOP donors Peter Ackerman, Greg Penner, Jeffrey Binder, and John Burbank. Then going on to his political positions, I mean, he was against Obamacare at one point. 
He wouldn't say if he supported Dodd-Frank. He accepts climate change, but has no stated position on even supporting something like cap-and-trade emissions. Uh, as you alluded to, well, he, he mentions that he's a gun owner, but he supports universal background checks. He won't say if, you know, he hasn't said if he supports an assault weapons ban. Again, there's something intuitively appealing, I think, to a lot of people, and this won't be a surprise to our audience, uh, obviously, but there's something intuitively appealing to a lot of people about saying, you know, I think for myself, I'm I'm neither left or right. Um, you know, I just want sensible solutions, yada, yada, yada. You know, and there's an audience for that message precisely because a lot of people have very justified reasons for hating both major parties. The two-party system is not is not popular. Congress is not popular, and there are very good reasons for that. But when you strip away the artifice of something like this, I mean, this guy is just pitching warmed over Bloombergism. There's absolutely nothing disruptive about it. It's just the politics that are already the norm in large parts of D.C., like throughout the Beltway. The politics that are the norm among the, the two people who were the executive producers for this. It's just that with a different packaging. There's absolutely nothing disruptive or, or interesting about it. Now let's talk about the heart and soul of the film. Hey guys, happy Listen First Friday. We're Aaron and David Leverton of Undivided Nation. And we're here to talk to you about how our lives were transformed through listening. Last year, we sold our house and quit our jobs and moved our family onto an RV to live in all 50 states for a year, listening to understand the root causes of division in America. And what we heard and what we learned changed our lives. Aaron and David Leverton, who are the characters who I think we spend the most time with and probably offer the closest thing to productive scenes that we see in the film, which is not saying much. Yeah, can I can I just say one thing I was thinking about, which we, we've commented on a lot uh, vis-a-vis films that we watch, like documentaries from maybe 2005, that kind of era. Back when we were much more of a, you know, Michael Moore specific podcast, you know, we used to comment on how, uh, how many of the conservative films and films made by people that didn't share Michael Moore's podcast politics how many of them seem to ape his basic documentary style and i have to say michael moore's influence as a filmmaker uh see and you know the kind of devices he uses seem very present in a movie like this i mean the central conceit uh, of the movie in some ways which uh, you know is rooted in this plot line is all about you know going on a going on a journey and being sort of these uh every people who are you know very earnest and curious and you know uh, gosh darn it they're gonna get at the truth everything down to the sort of like very personal kind of voiceover narration you know kind of hearing about their backgrounds and uh you know that kind of thing uh it all reminded me of michael moore although perhaps it's just because doing this podcast with you for four years has pickled my brain no i think there's something to it these two are ordinary people who like you and me have been troubled by what they've been seeing on their nightly news for the past few years one day they saw a news report of a man with a mega hat who was hit by a rock and started bleeding from his forehead and aaron asked her husband if we didn't have a mortgage what would you want to wake up and do tomorrow and he said I'd like to bring unity to America. And she said, the first step to healing division is to actually go out and talk to people. So David quit his job, they sold their house, they bought an RV, and they hit the road to visit all 50 states to talk to a broad cross-section of people to get a real understanding of what was causing these divisions. Now, I think these two are among the more sympathetic characters in the film, because, I mean, you kind of got to hand it to them. They did do this. (laughs) I mean, they seem to genuinely be motivated out out of some sort of curiosity. I I have to say, I mean, it's very easy to dunk on these people. uh, And don't worry, we're going to. But, you know, the film kind of sees them transform from sort of, I don't know, very earnest Republicans to very earnest libs. I mean, they actually don't really seem to change that much. Which is a problem, I would say. Which, yeah, which also kind of speaks to the issue, uh, you know, the underlying issue with this film and, and kind of its thesis as a whole. But they are so incredibly earnest. And I mean, for that reason, they're very easy to dunk on. I mean, I mean, I really scoffed, you know, when they went to that reservation um, and, you know, they're talking to various indigenous people. And then as they're driving away, the husband, he, you know, he just very earnestly says, you know, Maybe, uh, you know, they've got a, we, we heard about a lot of problems today and like maybe they have those problems because the government di- dispossessed them of their land. I mean, yeah, the fact that they're coming to some of these insights <laughs> deep into Middle Ages. They're, they're talking they're talking to, you know, various other people that are involved in their, you know, bridge building initiative or whatever. And they're saying stuff like. 
th- I just thought that racism was something that we that's kind of over and done with. Like that's in our past. We would out and people experience racism all the time. Well, this is the strand of the film where we actually get a sense of what some of these issues are that are allegedly tearing America apart. You mentioned the native reservation. We see them talking to a Mexican-American man who who tearfully tells them about some of the hate and discrimination he's faced. In a really difficult-to-watch scene, they talk to a black woman who says up front that she doesn't have positive feelings about white people. And this stems back to when she was pregnant and started going into labor prematurely. She went to the hospital, the doctors neglected her, and the baby died. And she believes she wasn't given proper care as a black unwed mother. And I mean, that's a that's a very painful scene to watch. But I mean, is the so is the solution the solution as the film is is apparently uh, suggesting to us, I think, or at least is implicitly suggesting to us is that certainly the onus is on couples like the Levertons who may not, you know, understand that stuff like this happens. But then presumably the onus, it seems, is also on her, you know, to understand the perspectives of people like the Levertons and, and also just people that like explicitly hate her or would diminish her concerns. Now, I actually watch a segment on The View uh, right before we started recording where Van Jones and Megan McCain, you know, the, the executive producers and the patron saints of this film kind of talk about this and you know the way they spin it is that you know they're not asking anybody to sort of tolerate like actual hate or you know reach across the aisle to nazis etc etc so their implicit framing is like this only applies to the reasonable people the problem is i'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that they would deem reasonable who wouldn't want to listen to a woman like this wouldn't want to hear about an experience like this and if they did would just dismiss the way that she characterizes it i mean Again, stating the obvious here, but one of the biggest problems with a movie like this and the whole kind of political ethos that it that it articulates is that one of the reasons political disagreements occur is because some political disagreements really are irreconcilable. You can resolve political disagreements if the disagreements are, are fairly narrow. And in fact, that happens all the time in Washington. In fact, that is the default mode of American politics. This is maybe getting ahead of ourselves here a bit. A hobby horse I've had for years is people are always complaining that there's too much partisanship and there's not enough bipartisanship. But bipartisanship is the default. I mean, first of all, it's it's the default mode of lawmaking, just actually by design in American politics. Secondly, it's the default rhetoric that politicians, both Democrat and Republican, fall back on. Thirdly, there's a ton of bipartisanship. It's not true that these people don't get along. If anything, they get along far too well. Uh, I wrote this article for Current Affairs a few years ago called The Curse of Bipartisanship. And uh, there's a bunch of photos in it, including one, by the way, which features one of the patron saints of this movie. If you think there's too much partisan in Washington, uh, take a look at some of the photos that were compiled for this piece. Take a look at the photo of the Clintons at Donald Trump's wedding. Take a look at the photo of George Bush and Michelle Obama, right? The one that inspired the please don't say something snarky meme. Got a photo here of... uh, Hillary Clinton beaming next to Rupert Murdoch of, you know, that Van Jones tweet, which I think has been uh, since deleted, which was at uh, an event that I gather is called uh, Nerd Prom. That is the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which which people in the media often call Nerd Prom. I'm sorry to have to say. Forgive me. I I should have known that. But uh, this was the one where, you know, he's next to Eric Trump. They're both smiling. And he says, when I say hashtag never Trump, I don't mean this Trump. You know, there's plenty of major legislation that's bipartisan, okay? The Gulf of Tonkin resolution, for example, the 1994 crime bill, uh, welfare reform, financial deregulation, the curbing of civil liberties under the auspices of anti-terrorism. The Patriot Act was cobbled together in large part anyway from legislation written by Joe Biden. In fact, he claimed it as his own. Uh, the Iraq War, a thoroughly bipartisan affair, just like the War on Terror. Literally anything to do with Israel, Palestine or the Middle East. Uh, defense spending. All of this stuff uh, is thoroughly bipartisan. Somebody like Van Jones can witness the election of, of Donald Trump and he he can go on TV and call it a white lash against a changing country. Uh, and then he can take a picture with Donald Trump's spawn and just smile and pat Eric Trump on the back. Because ultimately, this is all for show. Most of these people don't really believe a word they say. At one point, Aaron Leverton says, like, she jokes that some of her friends were worried that they would become Democrats. And, you know, they, they laugh about that. She says, this is about stepping into someone's story. And that has nothing to do with politics. And later on, she says... 
I went on this journey trying to find the problem, and I found out that I was part of the problem. So that's step one. She realizes she's part of the problem. She realized she has internalized some racism. She participates in systems that encourage racism. These are good things to understand about oneself, but then what do you do with that insight now? I mean, the film ends as it must with her and her husband buying a new home that looks exactly like the home they had before, as if to suggest that after this journey across all 50 states, uh, uh, I'm not sure if they made it to Alaska, but uh, allegedly all 50 states. Yeah, did they go to Hawaii? (laughs) uh, They're back now, and, and ultimately the legacy of it is they're now better people. Because they feel harder. Yes, yes, right. And so, you know, this movie, yes, very bland, as I said. It is regurgitating these platitudes that have been swirling around in American politics for decades. But this is what makes this film very of the times, very of 2020, 2021. You know, it's a film where people are constantly saying stuff like, you know, the real polarization is in our hearts and we can't fix it through policy. Uh, We have to fix it in our hearts. So it's offloading responsibility onto all of us. Right, right. And, you know, people will say stuff like... um, Become willing neoliberal subjects like you were 10 years ago (laughs) and it'll be be fine. Right, 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 right. Right. I mean, people are constantly saying stuff like, uh, you know, we are the government. So if we want it to change, like we have to change ourselves, which engages in the pretty absurd fallacy, just transparently ludicrous fallacy uh, that, you know, America's uh, political institutions are really democratic at all or that the people who you know exist in them are representative by and large of the population as a whole, which, you know, of course, they're of course they're not. But yes, you're right. I mean, the whole premise of uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not putting this on uh, on the Levertons, but the premise of the of the book that the movie is, uh, you know, inspired by very much seems to be about offloading responsibility onto individuals. This really speaks to the problem with the whole kind of mainstream narrative about polarization, at least as as I understand it. It's something that I feel like I'm engaging with and, and coming up against a lot, which is that polarization, as a lot of people understand it, it really renders political problems as kind of spiritual. And the irony there is that is a very culture war sort of framing of things. At least it shares an essential premise of the culture war, which is that politics are culture and culture are politics, right? The cultural divide is something that's kind of ethereal. It's in, it's intangible. It's immaterial. It's not real. So if you just reach across it, you know, you can, you can kind of dissolve it. It's not an extension of, of actual polarization. It's kind of something illusory and you can defeat it through understanding. I, I do think that is something a lot of people very earnestly believe, but I just don't think it's correct. And it's going to lead to a lot of really dumb, you know, I hate, I hate to use the word, but solutions to, to problems. Um, one example of this I can think of off, off the top of my head, back in 2019 when Pete Buttigieg was, uh, you know, I guess a few months into his presidential campaign, he put, he put this national service program idea on the table. Uh, and I wrote about this in the summer of 2019. And I don't know, this is just kind of him resurrecting an idea that, you know, I actually was uh, interested to discover that a lot of uh, like Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama at various points both pitched, you know, a national service program. Kristen Gillibrand had a version. John Delaney had a version. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton announced a similar initiative. Um, this is a very popular idea. But what was interesting to me was the justification Pete Buttigieg had for this. I want to read from the plan as it was written up on his official website. In the great unwinding of American civic society underway, and at a time when Americans are experiencing record low trust in fellow citizens and American institutions, few, if any, single policy solutions carry the promise of democratic renewal more than national service. At this moment, when social media and deepening polarization have put us into distinct bubbles, national service is that much more essential to fashioning a common character. So I think this is very interesting. And, you know, it's easy to dunk on liberals for having no beliefs. I think that can sometimes be true, you know, especially, you know, when uh, people are talking in terms of like, the, I'm I'm the CEO of the uh, initiative for incremental bridge building or whatever the thing is. Very easy to dunk on that kind of rhetoric uh, as empty because uh, because it is. But you can see that there's actually there's an actual ideology at work here and and, you know, a conscious one. The idea behind Pete Buttigieg's national service program and things like it is that people lack a common experience, common life experience. And if they have a shared one, like, you know, getting together as part of some AmeriCorps initiative and I don't know, uh, literally building a bridge in, in West Virginia or whatever, you know, whatever people do, helping build a road or something like that, people will see that we're not so different. 
And then that, by extension, becomes a basis for social solidarity. That's the argument. And the problem with that is that I think real social solidarity, it doesn't just require shared experience, it requires a common collective experience. It requires some equality of condition as well as, you know, some uh, some shared experience. You know, I, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record on this, but, you know, Medicare for all is a much p- more powerful tool if your interest is in fostering common experience and social solidarity. Well, on that point, I mean, they had this conversation with the unwed black mother who didn't receive the proper medical care that uh, the white people in the hospital received. Now, the Levertons say at one point, we're, we're certainly not going to start becoming Democrats. I mean, having acquired this knowledge that this woman has given them, have they considered any actual strategies, whether through the ballot box or whether through any other means, that could get her adequate medical care? I mean, again, this is the problem with saying, well, the solutions are spiritual, polarization is in our hearts, there's not a a policy solution. Ultimately, none of the problems uh, that are identified in the movie, such as any concrete problems are identified, can be solved through anything but policy. So at the end of the day, you still have the same problem, which is that people disagree over not only what the solutions to the problems are, but what the problems are to begin with. Well, this is why the Levertons, even though they are among the more sympathetic characters in this movie, still aren't very sympathetic. Because at the end of the film, we find out that really all this was about was getting them to feel better about the terrible things they're seeing on their TV. Yes, and that is another thing. Thing that I think makes this movie very of 2021. Uh, the solution to partisan gridlock, polarization, the rise of uh, quote-unquote political extremism of the right and the left, uh, whatever, uh, is like post-partisan struggle sessions. That's the solution. You know, all political solutions are individual and involve this kind of ritualistic sort of self-punishment, declaration of one's privileges. And as you say, the, the sort of ultimate outcome of all of this just seems to be to make individual people feel better about themselves like i was i was blind but i have now seen the way and i'm spreading the good word of ending bipartisan gridlock in the interest of incremental solutions for the for the benefit of all who want it i want to briefly mention the hardest scene in the movie to watch which is when the levertons meet heather hayer's mother They decide to settle in Virginia, uh, in Charlottesville, in fact, not far from where Heather Hayer's mother lives. And she comes over for lunch or something. And and Heather Hayer's mother, whose name, by the way, is Susan Bro, admits that she was so angry at the Levertons for a video that they posted on the Internet. She was so angry at them for stirring up opposition. And David Leverton says to her, so you connected my involvement in the political system to the murder of your daughter. It's a strange scene and a difficult scene and and there's such there's such kind of raw sadness in it such such raw pain that I felt bad watching it in the context of this film. Yeah, absolutely. And and I actually uh, one of the things I really resent the film for and and one of the things that feels kind of insidious about it uh, is the way that it, I kind of almost hate to use this word, but the way it weaponizes a genuine human suffering and tragedy in the interests of a politics that are absolutely not going to alleviate that suffering and tragedy. It's like at the conclusion of the film, all we're left with is the prospect of sensible bipartisan solutions. And that hardly seems to honor any of what, you know, Susan Bro is trying to do. And I think the fundamental incoherence of the film's thesis is actually manifested in how incoherently it's kind of edited and stitched together. A lot of these plot lines don't really belong next to each other. They're not describing experiences or, or stories that are in any way really parallel. Um, they don't really belong in the same film, you know, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that postpartisanship is incoherent itself. And so if you make a film about it, it's not going to be coherent politically or on it or even on a basic narrative level. Well, the problem with the thesis that there are two sides and we need to find a third way is how do you define those two sides? Like, is Black Lives Matter Democrat? Right. I mean, so David Frum's awful book, you know, his kind of best selling book, uh, one of his two best selling books about Donald Trump has this the first chapter. Or the first uh, one of the early chapters, he's talking about how, you know, there's all this division in, in the United States. And he like lists a few examples of like, you know, areas where the Democrats 
and Republicans, you know, didn't get along to achieve some, you know, partisanship got in the way of some completely like nothing policy item, uh, you know, passing in, in like even more watered down fashion or something. But then he's talking about how, you know, there are these forces in American life that have contributed to all this division. And he says that, you know, some of them are from one side, some of them from the other, but they have something in common, which is that they all have a, a tolerance for, you know, violent and violent attitudes that we hadn't really seen uh, in this way before. And among them, he lists Donald Trump and, and the Trump movement uh, and also Black Lives Matter. Does he say anything about militarized police? I think we both know the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, um, and, and again, I mean, this book did so well. I can't believe I mean, I'm, I'm convinced a lot of the people who who bought it and even some, you know, even a lot of the people who reviewed it cannot have actually read it cover to cover because um, a lot of the stuff in that book should be controversial, even among sort of like milquetoast liberal pundits. And yet uh, I didn't hear about any of it until I read the book for myself. There's a part later in the book where he compares supporters of Bernie Sanders to the brown shirts. I mean, like quite, quite literally. Huh. This last one doesn't have anything to do with uh, the film, but I, it's it's just another thing that's that's funny to mention. But he depicts the fake news phenomenon. He he says the origin of that is like the postmodern turn in the academy. He's kind of like flirting with a sort of very like Jordan Peterson esque like postmodern neo Marxism is like the real fake news or whatever. <laughs> Completely ludicrous uh, and stupid book. Well, as we put the film to bed, I would love to mention also the closing credits where we are suddenly introduced to a whole bunch of new characters and the organizations that they are founding and we're sort of led to believe that this postpartisan idea has spawned a movement in America of people who are just mad as hell and, and aren't going to take it anymore. I made notes. I'd like to read what some of these organizations are. There's Braver Angels, which is bringing liberals and conservatives together to depolarize America. There's Living Room Conversations, True Access, the Listen First Project, which is about bridging divides with conversations. There's the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford University. I mean, that one really pisses me off. The fact that there's like university funding going into that. There's All Sides Connect, which is engaging students around the country to engage in conversations on difficult topics. That one also makes me mad because other students around the country are already engaging in conversations on difficult topics. I mean, you go on TikTok and that's all they're doing. All they're talking about is social justice stuff. Yeah, I thought that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> difficult topics like, you know, how polarization is tearing us apart. Like, like how should we, we means test child benefits? There's the Bridge Alliance and there's one called God. there's one called all sides which the the founder says is part of a much bigger movement going on in our country now to break down divides and i don't think we need all of these i think you know we saw the millennial action project and i think that's great i think that it should all be folded into that <laughs> all of those titles in the branding these organizations all have it it all gets it a, a long-standing pet peeve of mine which is like i don't know when marketing departments and PR people figured out that if you call something a movement or you call it grassroots, like no matter how astroturfed it is, like that's always going to be a better selling point than something being just like, oh yeah, this is just like yet another corporate funded thing. There's some kind of luxury clothing store near where I live that has something about how like we're building a movement, like that's the slogan. One of the fitness guys I follow, he brands his like gym bro programs, which are very good, I have to say, as like, you're not just signing up for my mailing list to get my program and giving me money. Uh, you're joining a movement. <laughs> this stuff is absolutely everywhere. And it's particularly prominent in like the nonprofit world among a lot of organizations that are, yeah, literally just funded by like Uber and Lyft. That's the real side of like post-modernity and late capitalism that people should be complaining about, you know, not college students who are being woke on, on TikTok. Just the fact that, like, literally everything is now a movement, even if it's sponsored by Pepsi. Our country is very divided right now. Stop! Stop! If we're going to live in a democracy, all of us have to learn to be mediators and bridge builders. I wish there was something I could do to help her. I don't want other mothers to go through this. This country needs bridge builders. People who have the courage to bring both sides together. 
I think why the politics of something like this intuitively have a lot of appeal to people is that, you know, the two-party system actually is very unrepresentative. American political institutions, uh, like those of most uh, democracies today, are very unrepresentative of people at large. Congress is very unpopular. And actually, in a a certain kind of way anyway, the actual sort of day-to-day business of American politics, you know, has gotten a lot more factional. Uh, People in this movie are the adorable millennial uh, who wants to build bridges. He's talking, he says a lot of stuff about how, like, you know, the founding fathers hated political parties. They didn't put them in the Constitution. Stuff like this has a certain, you know, superficial appeal anyway, because it does carry with it an element of truth. I mean, it's true that America has, you know, often been a kind of two-party system. There have been two large forces kind of uh, pitted against each other. Two parties of one kind or another, things calling themselves parties, having the majority of members in the U.S. Congress. But the kind of factional quality that we associate with them today is a more recent invention, right? The parties used to be much more regionally based and less kind of ideologically grounded. You know, I mean, the Democrats at one point were both a party of like Southern Dixiecrats and a party of of civil rights activists. And, you know, in the 1990s, thanks to people like uh, Newt Gingrich and and a number of others, this very partisan style, you know, Mitch McConnell now being sort of the most one of the most expert practitioners of this today, they discovered that you can actually uh, legislate and do opposition politics in particular in this very partisan way. And you can actually kind of grind things to a halt. And it's usually the other side, namely the Democrats, you know, who take the blame. So it's actually, you know, creating gridlock is a very viable electoral strategy. And uh, it's easy to dunk on uh, libs who complain about this stuff or, or, you know, just people who complain about this stuff in general. But I mean, I actually have a certain amount of sympathy for this. People are right to be frustrated by things like gridlock. They're right to be frustrated that a Democratic majority Congress can't even, you know, send $2,000 relief checks. It can't even be honest about the size of the checks. It's not true, as pundits say, that, you know, nothing gets done, you know, quote unquote, in Washington. Plenty of stuff gets done when the stuff is like approving, you know, the next multi-trillion dollar defense budget or whatever. But it's true that, you know, if you're an ordinary person, not a lot of this stuff is really going to benefit you and you're not going to have much time for it. So the kind of anti-political impulse that comes out of this, which is, you know, we need to break from the two-party system is one that I'm actually pretty sympathetic to. I'm also sympathetic in a sort of alternative way to people who complain about polarization because a lot of what we might broadly think of as the culture war really is bullshit. And we you know we've talked about uh, cable news and, and its business model in, on previous episodes of the show. But I mean, there literally is a multi-billion dollar for-profit industry that makes money. You know, the entire business model is premised on getting people to hate each other for often very superficial reasons and kind of stoking a culture war and in making politics into into this emotionally potent spectacle uh, that actually has very low stakes because it's all theater anyway. And these people are, you know, Van Jones is hanging out with Eric Trump after Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton are friends, et cetera, et cetera. Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton are friends. You know, the elites are actually getting along perfectly well. So I'm sympathetic uh, in a way, I suppose, to all of that. But here I would like to put on, on the table, if you will, uh, my own third way. You know, I actually used to be very skeptical when I was a, a student about, you know, the way that, you know, I've always thought of myself as being on the left, but I, I used to be very skeptical of how much people on the left seem to talk about democracy. Because to me, and, and this was probably, you know, partly as a result of like being on a campus and being involved, you know, going to student meetings or meetings of student organizations myself. But to me, that just meant sort of taking a show of hands. And that didn't seem to, uh, you know, be something to me that, that redounded to, you know, very much of anything getting done. You know, and eventually I learned that that's not really what people meant by democracy, people on the left anyway, when they talked about it. But then I further learned and, you know, uh, writing about American politics for, you know, five or six years has certainly impressed this on me over and over again. Small d democracy and taking a show of hands often really is important. Uh, when a majority of the population over and over again in opinion polls seem to support something like Medicare for All, but you can't get any buy-in from major newspapers on this. No editorial boards at a major newspaper support an idea like that. When a majority of people who are going to vote in a Democratic primary, even in a more conservative state, uh, will say in an exit poll that they think the American economic system needs a complete and total overhaul. When polls again and again uh, find people disillusioned with how money has captured the American system, 
system, uh, how much special interests exert power in policymaking in the legislative process, things like that. Small d democracy, I think, actually is really important. And it almost never redounds to the kinds of, you know, quote unquote, sensible middle ground solutions that people like the MAP initiative, the problem, whatever it's called, the Problem Solvers Caucus, the Bridge Builders Institute or, you know, whatever it is. There is no popular constituency really ever for the kinds of uh, the kinds of solutions they they propose. Or if there is, just because the initiatives themselves are kind of so superficial and symbolic that uh, it's impossible to disagree with them. And just to close this out here, I want to bring up one of my absolute favorite anecdotes about kind of postpartisanship and just how silly it is as a concept. Uh, if you've listened to Michael and us uh, since kind of season one or two, uh, this is definitely something you've heard me talk about before, but it's a lot of fun and I want to discuss it again. Uh, it's a great article from 2011 in the Columbia Journalism Review, and it's about something called the Politico primary. Just to underline the point, that is the Politico primary, like Politico magazine. That's right. So this this article, uh, this write-up was done by a, a writer called uh, Greg Marks, who points out that uh, he's, he's talking about this uh, gimmick, what he calls a gimmicky new feature called Politico Primary in which readers are invited to nominate and vote on independent presidential candidates for the 2012 election. Sure, there's absolutely no reason to think an independent or third-party candidate could seriously contest the presidency, and there's abundant reason to think that if, by some miracle, an independent president actually did win, he or she would be hamstrung when it comes to actually running the country. But Politico is being lighthearted about what is essentially a reader engagement enterprise. It's presented as a part parlor game, part reporting assessment. Um, so he's, you know, he's trying to be generous here. Um, but then he goes on, did they have to make it so terrible? Maybe some creative reader nominations will salvage Politico primary, the project's original installation, captures all the worst parts of the Politico gestalt. Indifference to policy and eagerness to see politicians as products to be marketed, undue deference to institutional authority, a fetish for centrism, regurgitated conventional wisdom, a breathtaking failure of imagination. It's all here. The single most aggravating aspect is the gaping chasm between Politico's pretensions to outside-the-box thinking and populist sentiment and the crushing establishment-approved obviousness of the first five candidates. In the introduction to the feature, Vanda High and Allen, these are the executive editor and the uh, White House correspondent, respectively, uh, they write, quote, The public has had it with Washington and conventional politics. Americans have lost trust and respect in the conventional governing class. And there is mounting evidence voters don't see President Obama or any of the Republican contenders as good opinions. Uh, so Greg Marks goes on. Those are big, bold statements. So who's one of the five candidates Vander Hay and Allen put forward to fill this void and restore trust and respect? Hillary Clinton. Yes, the Hillary Clinton who has spent two decades as part of the governing class and was very nearly our 44th president. If that weren't obtuse enough, Vanda High and Allen argue that Clinton would be a viable independent candidate in part because, quote, her family's access to rich donors is legendary. <laughs> <laughs> because as we all know, only legacy candidates with legendary access to rich donors can restore trust in public office. Who are some other uh, possible contenders? Okay, so this is where it gets really fun. The other candidates are no more inspired and hardly offer more of a solution to the problem Vanda High and Allen say needs solving. Empty-headed pundits are forever pining for military leaders to save us from political dysfunction. So of course David Petraeus is here, apparently on the grounds that voters are craving, quote, a no-labels candidate, especially if he has a strong chin, salutes smartly, and looks good in a uniform. Actual opening sentence to the Petraeus blurb, quote, in the end, every voter wants the same darn thing, a strong leader they can truly believe in. This brings us to our next candidate, Augusto Pinochet. <laughs> Greg Marks continues, a corollary to the military savior fantasy is the business savior fantasy. So there's also a place... Uh, Donald Trump, possibly? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right, and uh, worth noting here, I mean, this article is written in 2011, but a big part of Donald Trump's appeal, right, was this pitch to independence, right? Uh -huh. Like, he attacked both parties. Greg Marks writes, you know, there's a place for generic CEO, played here by Cisco's John Chambers, Essentially, Chambers' appeal is that he knows how to create jobs in a competitive global economy. Uh, Vanda High and Allen, finally somebody who's going to start thinking about how to do that. Vanda High and Allen don't really say what such a policy agenda might look like. They have, though, given thought to how to package Chambers for voter consumption. And this is how they package it. He could... <laughs> 
he could run as an authentic outsider, someone who hasn't spent his life pursuing public office. A Washington has no damn clue message on navigating and dominating the world economy would resonate for many. His smooth speaking style and self-confidence would play well on the national stage. You know, I guess this is what like Howard Schultz was thinking as well. We all know how that went. So others are Condoleezza Rice, uh, you know, someone who literally worked in the Bush administration. Rounding out the lineup is Erskine Bowles, the former White House chief of staff, uh, who served as co-chair of President Obama's Deficit Reduction Commission. I can't decide, this is Greg Marks again, I can't decide whether Bowles is the least depressing or most depressing of the candidates here. On the one hand, he's closely identified with a specific agenda that is responsive to a real long-term national challenge. On the other hand, it's the wrong challenge to be obsessing about right Right now, Vandehei and Allen opened the Bulls blurb thusly, quote, the most depressing reality of modern governance is this. The current system seems incapable of dealing with our de- debt addiction before it becomes a crippling crisis. <laughs> but what about what about somebody like uh, Oprah or Tom Hanks or Dwayne The Rock Johnson? I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up, because I think if this something like this was done now, you would get like like there has been a further kind of celebrityification of American politics doesn't roll off the tongue very well but 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 you take my point you know since this was written well early in the Trump era on a slow week slumming columnist would write a column like oh we need our own celebrity we need to get uh, we need to get George Clooney in there or someone equally charismatic yeah Mar- do you remember like those various attempts to have like Mark Zuckerberg to float him as a candidate yes yeah every election cycle uh, various figures like this are pitched and it all seems to come back to the contradiction that is inherent in a movie like the reunited states which is it's time to break with this you know staid conventional thinking of washington we need real outside of the box populist thinking who can who can take us back to the exact point where we already are and who who quite probably comes from a background that's like puts them in line with like 99 percent of the political class the the only person i think who could do it the only person who can unite everyone from across the spectrum mr Clint Eastwood. I don't care that he's 90 years old. I think we've got at least 10 more years left with him. I like his position on fossil fuels that he expressed in his RNC speech. I also like his position on getting down to work. He seems to have a feeling for the little man. We certainly know he's (laughs) pro-choice. Well, if nothing else, uh, the reun- watching the reunited states taught me that politics should take a cue from jazz and become a call and response medium. Listening is everything. And that's why from now on, the show will be abandoning its crossfire inspired format where Will and I hector each other across the table. Yes, for too long, we've simply had too many disagreements on this show. <laughs> well, as Stephen Olacara, the founder of the Millennial Action Project, said, Two major forces shape the future of our politics. One is worsening polarization and gridlock, which for too long is what this podcast has been devoted to. But the second, the one that we can really embrace is the rising millennial generation, which which he believes will transform American politics. <laughs> and which we all know uh, absolutely loves jazz. <laughs> <laughs>